Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Here we go, Greg. I think you are in the place to be, man. Thanks for being here, dude. What's going on? Yeah, Chris, it's a pleasure. Yeah, man. So, you know, what little I know about you, I think I read something on you that you had 15 surgeries already. Yeah. So One more, I get a free coffee. <laughs> so what's, uh, let's maybe start there and dive in on that. Like, what, Why so many surgeries? What, what was going on? I found out in 2015 that over the course of several years, my voice had become so badly damaged that if I didn't do something, I would lose the ability to speak forever. Um, the official name or sort of explanation of what was going on was my vocal cords were so badly damaged that they were about to become paralyzed. That's sort of a protective mechanism that they, that they have. It's like when you go to a concert, maybe have a little too much tequila, you yell a bit too much. The next day you're kind of hoarse. That's because your vocal cords are swollen. If you continue to push it past that, they kind of go, wait a minute, we're just not going to move at all and see if we can heal ourselves. I had been to the point where they had tried that, forced them through it, tried more, forced them through it, and they were about to give out. They were sort of just about to give up the fight. So the doctor that I, I went to see, he's world-famous ENT, ear, nose, and throat specialist. I mean, okay. they're, the, they're the folks who look at your vocal cords and keep them healthy. And he said, I... I don't know how you're performing professionally with vocal cords this badly damaged, but here's the deal. If you do nothing, in about two weeks to two months, you'll experience total vocal fold paralysis. You'll never sing again, and you'll have to use one of those devices that it vibrates your voice and you uh. sound like this. Um, so, you know, your sales career is probably shot. And at that point in time, I had two careers, if you will. I had a day job where I was a commercial insurance broker. Yeah. Pretty good living. Pretty interesting job. I didn't really like it. Um, it wasn't what I saw myself doing. It's just sort of where I fell in I life. I know how that goes. Yeah. A lot of people seem to know how that goes, Chris. <laughs> yeah, weird, right? But at night, I got to satiate my real passion, what, what I loved doing, and that was music and performing. I worked at dueling piano bars. And I coupled my day job with my night job insofar as whenever I would travel for work, I'd reach out to piano bars there and I'd see if I could get a shift. So I've played at this point all over the world. I've played on five continents. I've, I've done theater gigs, small bars, big bars, Vegas, Paris, you name it. So I was kind of not living my best life, but living a great version of the life I was living anyway. And this came tumbling down. And I had to make a decision about the surgery. Do I do what the doctor is suggesting, the full surgery, 
it's going to put me out of commission for eight months plus before I could start really having conversational talking and give up my day job. My singing career was gone in my mind at that point in time. Or do I come up with perhaps an alternative? And that's what I proposed to this doctor. I said, you know, would there be a way that we could do a smaller surgery, maybe something not as invasive, something not as uh, intense that might make, might get me back speaking in say six to eight weeks. Okay. He said, well, yeah, we, we could address the most pernicious stuff right away and then sort of see where that leaves us. And Chris, it's because of that decision that instead of having probably what would have been three surgeries total, over five years, I'd go on to have 15 surgeries, 13 on my vocal cords, and two to completely rebuild a valve in my stomach. Wow. Dude, that's pretty, that's intense right there, man. That was a whole lot to take in. How old were you at this time? I mean, you seem pretty young. Thank you. I have a good <laughs> facial moisturizing routine. No. Um, <laughs> that's a secret, I, so huh? it, was, it, was, it was 2015, so... I don't know, 32, 33, I think I was about. I just turned 40, so, you know, whatever the reverse math is there, sure. I'm like 33. Yeah, they have 15 surgeries, and, I mean, that's pretty young. I mean, I'm 36, and just, you know, I've only had two. And I guess most, a lot of people probably have none. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't even know what the facts or stats on that, but I can imagine, I mean, how, how did that play with your mindset, though? I mean, you're like you said, you were dueling piano bar, you were in five continents, and... You know, it seems like you're doing pretty well for yourself. And all of a sudden it was like, hey, you got to do this. You know, for how long did this, you said the surgery was eight, eight years over time? The 15 surgeries? Uh, no. So over the last one was uh, October something 2020, just okay. after my daughter was born. So over the span of about five years, yeah, so that's 15 just, surgeries. That's a lot. I mean, what, what was your mindset like during then? I mean, were you worried? Did you know that you were going into the right direction? So I think I think the difference... Um, between anxiety and anticipation is the expected outcome. And so I was eager. I was actually eager to get the surgeries done. I was, I had the, the best surgeon in the world. Sure. I mean, this guy's worked on Tony Bennett, Neil Diamond, Shania Twain. I mean, I could go on. There's some names I can't even mention just because of, you know, they're not permitted to be mentioned. Sure. Um, these, these are the folks who have made it known that they've had surgeries. Um, I was in the best possible care that I could be in. And I, I, sort of the way I looked at it was if I approach this with a negative mindset, then I'm only hurting myself. Cause I, I do believe that there is a connection between what we think and how our body reacts to those thoughts. If I approached it with this expectation that, Hey, we're going to get through this. It's going to be messy, but it's going to be better on the other side. I thought, well, at least I'm giving my body a fighting chance. I'm sort of putting the good vibes out there, if you will. Yeah. Um, but it was hard going through this process where you are totally silent for a period of time. Then very slowly and methodically, my voice team would, would help me speak again. Because after several weeks of total silence, it's funny, you're, you're almost hesitant to use your voice because you've been practicing or, or you've been so focused on not making noise that now they're saying, okay, so let's, let's have you make a sound. And it's sort of like, really? Like, yeah, like, actually, like, like use this thing. You know what I mean? Okay. It, are you sure? And being that hesitant can actually hurt the voice. So you, you, you really want to just go. So the vocal team worked with me over the course of then several weeks to, to get my voice 
rehabilitated to a point where I could have a could have a normal conversation in quiet tones in a quiet room. And for people who know me well, they know there is nothing quiet about me. So it was very difficult to not launch into conversation. You know, walking down the street is very loud. And it made me cognizant this whole experience of how loud the ambient noise is in places around us. Like, you know, you go into a bar at 3 p.m. and hang out till 6 p.m. And the decibel level of the music raises like 30 decibels. It's, there's no reason for it. And I know it makes me sound like, you know, this crotchety old man talking about this, yeah. but there's some obsession we have with like ridiculously loud music in a place where we're all supposed to be like talking and socializing. It's, it's really, there's, once you start digging into the well of vocal health, you see that there's a lot that goes on day to day with all of us. That's just really bad for our voice. Um, but you asked about mindset, Chris, and, and it's, it's more that after that rehab, and after you finally get over that hump of weeks and weeks, and finally you're speaking in conversation in a quiet room and quiet tones, the next um, evaluation at the doctor's office, they say, all right, we're ready for the next surgery. So it's like you do this all over again. And then there's, you know, a slight complication with the next one. And so it's a little more time of silence or it's a little harder recovery. And then you finally get over that hump and they go, let's do the next one. It's like, oh, again. And it's... it's um, the stopping and the starting is what made it difficult. Yeah. Right. Once you think you're, you know, over the hump and all of a sudden you got to restart all over again and go back down that road. And it's, I couldn't imagine just, you know, right. When, you know, you think you're getting your voice back, like you said that all of a sudden, Oh damn. All right. Now we got to do this all over again. And, and there's we, parallels to that. I mean, you, you know, you work out. Sure. So you have an injury at the gym and it sets you back, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, your, your lap pull downs 120, 160, you know, 250, whatever you're doing. And you're super excited, to, you know, you're, you're excited to be there. You're happy about the progress you've made. You tweak something in your back and it's like, all right, back to assisted pull-ups. You yeah. know, we work our way back there. It's, and people in business have this where you have a rough quarter, you lose a big client, maybe not a promotion, let's say, but either a demotion or status quo, or maybe you're asked to leave the company. I mean, we're really all restarting. You know, if you think about it, not Groundhog's Day, but kind of every day you have an opportunity to restart. And I think the people that are successful leverage that. They don't get stuck in this rut on this wheel that so many of us feel like we're stuck on where life is moving so fast that we can't make the changes that we want to make because we feel like we might fall off or, or lose our balance or that's all of these responsibilities that we're juggling precariously. It's like if one of those responsibilities drops, oh my God, what are we going to do? And, and, and this experience gave, gave me the perspective um, to really change the way I thought about life because I, I believed what everything I just shared with you, the wheel, the juggling, the speed of life, it just it was, it was too strong for me to do what I wanted to do. It certainly wasn't being an insurance broker. Yeah. I didn't, didn't hate it just didn't, didn't light my soul on fire when I went to work every day. I didn't feel like I was making a real difference, at least not the difference that I wanted to make. And I know there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way because I speak to them. I mean, I op my keynote, I open up conferences, I speak to thousands of people at a time, and I speak all over the world. And people come up after these programs and they go, man, I felt like you were basically talking my life story just with different events. Sure. Because we... I felt, and I think a lot of us, we, we all feel this way. And, and unfortunately for many of us, it's going to take a traumatic event, the loss of a loved one, a, a terminal diagnosis, 
you know, losing a huge job at the wrong time and really struggling financially and feeling like we're at rock bottom are actually hitting rock bottom to look at life a different way and to change the beliefs that, that we've created mm-hmm. over the course of our life. We've all got this belief structure that we've built up over our lives. It, it protects us, we think, in some cases. It sort of guides our decision-making. And there's a term in psychology called ontological shock. And what it basically means is the brain short circuits, this is a really bastardized explanation of it, but right. to, to simplify it, the brain kind of short circuits when something we've believed to be true for so long, we suddenly realize isn't. And, and that's what makes trauma, that's what makes these tragic experiences particularly difficult for us to practice. Mm-hmm. Because we're now confronting this belief system that we thought was there to support us, to help us, to guide us. And we're going, man, that wasn't the tool. That was a liability. That belief structure kept me from so much. And then there's the regret of missed opportunity. So there's so many emotions that go along with this. Yeah. And just touching on that, you're talking about the brain and stuff. It's like almost we're wired for primal instincts, and like survival of the, just, just to survive. So like you were saying, some of us are afraid to maybe take that chance or, we, or when we get stuck on the hamster wheel that, you know, we don't want to make a decision, you know, to take a bigger risk because, ooh, it's like the brain's like, ooh, you, you might not make it, you know, so why don't you go back, take the easy road back down. You know, and a lot of the success from, you know, talking with people like yourself and, you know, looking up at people like, you know, Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and all those big, you, you know. You did not just put me in a list with Michael no, no, Jordan no, no, and Kobe well, Bryant. No, 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 no. I didn't mean it that way, but, I, but I'm saying like, you know, a lot of success is that, you know, they were doing all the hard work behind the scenes and, you know, keep grinding and, what you know, whereas some people, like you said, get stuck on a wheel and just were like, all right, I'll just stay stuck on this wheel and just take the easy road out. But it's all, that's what I was trying to say is that the success road is the hard road taken each time, every time, and just pushing through and grinding and you know taking the ups and downs and and eventually, hopefully, if everything turns right, and there might be a little luck involved there here and there, but that's a lot of part of success, you know, it's just doing the stuff you don't want to do so you can makes it easier the next day on. You've yeah, and I I've, I've come to believe that you've got to be willing to metaphorically kill who you are today to become who you're capable of being tomorrow. That, that, that process of letting go of understanding that everything we quote unquote have is impermanent. And it's a, it's a very stoic philosophy. It's a very stoic approach to this, but it's, we can't become who we're capable of being unless we change. Sure. And to change means abandoning who we, not abandoning, but it means evolving from who we are now. And I, I believe that there is something to this concept of labels. I am injured. My voice is injured. Well, as long as I ascribe that label that I, I've got an injured voice, I'm going to act differently. And it was, it was at one point that my vocal team said to me, you know, Greg, you need to start thinking of yourself as post-recovery. Mm-hmm. Your voice is healthy. You can't treat it like someone who's got a um, an unrehabilitated voice, like like a, like I'll call it a normal voice, but someone who's never been through the vocal trauma that I've been through, because my voice will likely not be as resilient as theirs, just because of how much damage it's already s- sustained. But it's 
there's no more surgeries to be had. Yeah. So yeah. that's a very challenging, um, it's a very challenging thing to remove a label. My wife works uh, with an eating disorder clinic. She's one of the yeah. marketing reps. And she talks often about how they're very, they're very intentional with the language they use when patients uh, come in. So it's not, oh, you have an eating disorder. It's you're dealing with an eating disorder right now. Because if I have it, that means I could lose it. And you said earlier, and you're, you're so right, our brains are super wired to avoid loss. Mm -hmm. we'll, even, we'll even shortcut and avoid gain if we feel that the loss it would take to gain that thing, I know what I know what I'm saying is really confusing right there. We will prioritize loss avoidance over achieving something. Sure. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. It's just like once you, if someone's scared of success and when a person's on top, they're scared of it because there's only one way to, or one way to go is just down obviously. So yeah, they don't. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there's another belief that you just hit on, right? There, there's only one way to go is down. Well, is there, I mean, is that really true? Or do we tell ourselves that? Is that a protective mechanism so that, you know, the Icarus effect, we don't get too close to the sun. Mm. It's a, it's a really funny thing, understanding how the brain works, what motivates us to achieve and, and what motivates us to perform. I mean, that's where I focus with a lot of the work that I do. It's helping everyone in an organization perform in a way that makes those next to them, to their left and right, those around them perform better. And it's, 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 it's the same concept that's, shared by pro sports teams that are wildly successful. It's the same concept that is shared by the military. Mm -hmm. I mean, folks that go to battle, they don't go to battle for, for God and country. I mean, it sounds great when we say that, but they go to battle for the person on the left and the right, the person in the foxhole with them. That's what it's about. So how do we create a culture within organization? I mean, this is what I'm focused on now, Chris, is how do we create a culture within an organization where we're short circuiting that brain's natural desire to, you know, as I call it, let me get mine before somebody else gets mine, that sort of scarcity mindset. How do we short circuit that? How do we work around it? How do we acknowledge the fact that our brain is wired for loss aversion, but that in these modern times, that's probably not beneficial to us, our coworkers or our organization. Sure. And how do we get people to perform in a way that lifts those up around them, that makes everyone else's performance better? organizations are like a choir, you know, it's like an ensemble performance. And if you see a choir, the hallmark of a great choir is that ability to blend vocally. No one is singing over the other. They're in this amazing pocket of sound where it's almost like one voice. That's when an organization is performing at its prime. It's not 5,000 employees, 20,000 employees around the world. It's one organization. It's a seamless experience. And that's what kind of, that's what drives me in the morning is getting to work with organizations and figure out how to help them achieve that. Do you think with those organizations to get that type of culture, a lot of it starts at the top with the leadership? Well, so I think of culture, it really, it really makes me giggle when companies talk about their corporate culture because companies aren't real. I mean, it, they're, what do I mean by that? Yeah. A company is nothing more than a legal designation. Okay. It's not a, it's not a person. We, we won't go down that road. A company, <laughs> a company is nothing more than a legal designation on a piece of paper. So the, a piece of paper has no culture. Piece of paper has no feelings. So a company has no culture. Each person that is employed by a company, they bring a culture. 
you have a way you look at the world, Chris, a way that you prefer to work. You have something that lights your soul on fire. Sure. And when you get into that, you're, you're what Mihai Cheek sent me I would call you're working in a flow state. You know, that, that feeling when three hours passes by or you look up and you go, Oh my God, it's dark out. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we all, what we really thrive in, in terms of performance is when we're in a flow state, but no company has a culture. Each individual does. And you asked if it starts at the top. I believe that the, the larger the title, the larger the dropper, right? I want you to envision like an eyedropper or a little medicine dropper. And so if you're just an entry-level employee, you know, you got a little tiny dropper and imagine that a company is, is a big vase. And, and so you you put a little dropper of you, of your culture into that vase. And, you know, if you're a manager, you a little bit bigger dropper, vice president, a little bit bigger dropper, CEO, big freaking dropper. Sure. So the, the CEO or, or, or the higher ranked a person is in an organization, the more influence they can have in the amalgam of that company culture and in, in that, that mix, if you will, that soup. Um, but I don't know that it can start at the top. I, I, I don't know that, that a CEO can just will a culture to be different. I, I think what you have to do is actually change the people. And, and that's, we spend so much time trying to build an employee. Yeah. And I wonder what it would be like if we spent more time, more time building the person. Good point. So you're saying it's like you change, you're, mm, people are trying to build the employee the way that they think the company should build it. But if you build the person to, you know, strive for better success, to self-improvement, be more self-aware, you know, work as a team, that would strive for more success within the organization. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're either going to get it or they won't when it comes to professional competencies. Like if you're an accountant, you're either going to get gap principles, you know, generally accepted accounting principles, like you're either going to get it or you won't. Sure. You're either going to get this new system or you won't. I'm not saying to abandon job related training, but we spend $300 billion annually around the globe. Every, you know, the, the global corporate spend on training and development is $300 billion. And right now, 98% of that spend is on job related training, like job specific skills, like the job you're in now is what they're training you on. Sure. And the catch 22 there is that, yeah, you need to be a good employee to keep your job. But most people didn't grow up going, gosh, I hope I'll be a good employee one day. That doesn't, it doesn't intrinsically drive us. So what if a company just shifted a little bit of that thinking, a little bit of that money into training and development of the person? Because the other rub, the other, the other part of this is that people are moving, you know, your grandpa, my grandpa, they, they worked at companies, I'm guessing, for like 30, 40 years. Mm. You know, that was, that was the dream back then was one company, gold Rolex at retirement, sail exactly. off into the sunset. Exactly. And that's not how the world works anymore. And some companies, I think the ones who are getting it right, have acknowledged and, and picked up on the fact that most employees leave between two and four years after they're hired. Sure. So number one, that means it's really important to understand which employee is what I call a keeper. That means they're, they, they want to be at your company. You are the final destination in their mind from an employment standpoint. They're, they're like our grandpa. They want to be here. This is who they want to work with. It's what they want to do. Those keepers, we want to make sure we develop them fully within this job. 
But then we've got another category that I call leapers. And these are the folks who see this job as a means to something else. Okay. So maybe they want to hop to a larger company from a smaller one. They don't have the skills in the industry and they're using this small company that they knew they could get hired at to go get a job at Google. It's like a stepping stone. Or, or maybe, you know, they come out of MIT and they're, they're at Google and they're like, you know, two to three years here, I can go get a chief technical officer job for some midsize company, get stock, fat paycheck, man. Nope. So those leapers are often A players. They're not bad. They're not disengaged. They're often kicking butt and taking names because they want to rise to the top and then move on. How do we develop them? It, it's different than the keepers because they have different goals. And then our third subset are, are what I call the sleepers. Mm. And this is the greatest transformational potential in corporate, in the corporate world right now. And, and many organizations are just ignoring them. They're calling them disengaged. They're the problem children. They're not problems. They're untapped potential. They're, they're, they're what I, I call trapped value. There's so much opportunity within that person. We're just not tapping into it because they're not connected to a purpose or they're not connected or they don't see the impact of what they do. I mean, these are the folks who kind of show up at eight, turn their brain off, get through the day, you know, maybe like a two hour bathroom break. I know, you know, some people like that because oh, I sure. knew some people like oh, that, for sure. you know, and then at five o'clock, they're the first one out of the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And, and as long give me that check on Friday, as long as I get that check on Friday, I'll see you on Monday. They're not bad people. They're just asleep. And it's the leader's responsibility to wake them up. And granted, some of them are going to wake up as if they're falling asleep on the bus, you know, and they're at like the bus depot and they go, oh, this isn't where I live. Oh my God. You know, and they're going to want to move on. Admittedly, some of them will will decide that they're in the wrong spot, but some of them are going to turn into leapers or keepers. Mm -hmm. And that's where the transformation starts for an organization. So this is, this is a really important part of the work that I do is, is understanding that because things have changed, because the rules are different, it's, it's not good enough to just make someone good at the job they're in. We got to give them skills that make them valuable at any job they might want in the future. And that's developing them as a person. And the knock-on effect of that, the, I think the real win for an organization is that that person goes home to a community, to a family. And so they're not just better in the work that they do. They're better in the places they live. <clears throat> Have you read that book, Bullshit Jobs? I think that's what it's called. No, but I'm going to put it on my list right now. I, I, I might messed up or messed up that title, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. But the whole point of it, or what you when you made, or the definition of what sleeper sounds like, it's just somebody who walks or goes to their job and they just kind of type and act like they're working all day long when they're not really doing any type of work. It's just they're unmotivated. They're just the only reason they're there is just for the paycheck. And once you know the bell rings or whenever quitting time is. You know, throwing up the deuces, they're out the door. And, but the, and it was just, I think it's part of what it was, was just talking about, you know, how do we motivate the, these type of people? How do we get them to pursue what they want to actually, you know, meet for their d- development goals? And, you know, but and that's just the whole book right there. And so that you just reminded me of that's just kind of, because I've dealt with people like that in, you know, my line of work. You know, I started out as, you know, working on a manufacturing plant. Then, you know, I was working at a tire factory right after college until I finally got my break and started working in higher education. But there's people like that who would just walk around all day and talk and, you know, would only work for literally maybe 30 minutes at a time. And then 
you know, quitting time they were out the door, but you know, it was like, how, how's this guy not getting fired? I mean, or whatever, but you know, it was basically cause he was mainly protected by the union and he just he took advantage of it all. And, you know, and he made a steady living there and he was, you know, he was happy to on the outside looking in, but it was just one of those things like, you know, when you see that it was almost degrading at the same time. Cause you know, I was one of the new guys right there trying to work my way up and try to be a keeper. And, you know, cause it was a really, it was a good job. You know I mean? You were working on a factory and it sucks. That part does, but it was very well paid. You know, there was a lot of good people there to help you out and it was good teamwork. But yeah, do you see this one guy over here getting paid the same amount as when the other person's like, well, this is trash. You know, I mean, if he's not, if he's not going to do any work, why should I? So I was wondering if that's just kind of, you know, with that book and everything, is that just kind of less motivating with people like that? They almost turn from a keeper to a sleeper just because of, you know, you know, what is that learn or lead by example almost? Or Yeah. That, so you hit on something just a minute ago that I think is so important. You asked, how do we motivate them? And then you, you, you went on to ask another question that I didn't write down, but it was something related to goals. You know, how, how do we find out what they want? And this is, I mean, this is a, I don't want to say far out idea. Cause it sounds like I'm in the seventies, like far out, man. <laughs> you know, what if we asked them, what if we asked them what they want? Exactly. I think the challenge is when it comes to employees and managers is that there's no trust. It's very hard to have a conversation about goals, a real com- an honest conversation about goals when the person on the other side of the table can fire you, when the person on the other side of the table can deny you a raise, can deny your vacation, can start digging into your days off if they think maybe you're interviewing somewhere else. Yeah. I think there has to be a real change in the tone and the direction of conversation between people at work. Because it starts, I think, with every, not every, but many interview uh, questions, you know, at some point you'll hear this in an interview, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Yep. I mean, that you know, I just picture that meme from Star Wars, you know, it's a trap. Like, (laughs) there's only one way to answer that. One, air quotes, acceptable way to answer that. And that's a problem. And it's a problem that I think could be solved by more coaching earlier on. I I look at a lot of executive development programs and there's always a component of coaching. And when you hit a certain level, normally it's like VP or sometimes it's director level, depending on where you're at. Sometimes at a smaller company, it's basically, unless you're the owner, you're not getting anything. But if you want the results and a lot of people talk about uh, this concept of a corporate athlete, you know, they, they want, um, college athletes to come work at a job or or folks who were athletes because they're, you know, they're competitive. They got this drive. Well, if you want those type of results, you have to understand that athletes pretty much once you hit high school and up, they have multiple coaches, not just one, you know, some big high school football teams, they got a strength and conditioning coach. You got multiple coaches. If you're on offensive line or defensive line or special teams, then you got your assistant coaches. Then you got your head coaches. But yet all of a sudden we go into the work world a place where we're talking about trillions of dollars of global impact. And what, we don't need coaches? It, it just, to me, it doesn't make any sense to look at these people who, you know, you call them disengaged, you call them unmotivated, and say, well, I don't, I don't really know how to get through to them. Do they trust you? Do they really trust that they can say, hey, you know what, Chris? I think in five years I'd really like to go work for Apple. 
What is, in my opinion, Chris probably thinking about as soon as I say that? Oh, shoot. I got to backfill this guy. I got to find somebody else to take his spot. Yeah. And the conversation that I think the employee is owed is, look, that's awesome. You've got performance expectations here. As long as you're meeting them, I'll do everything in my power to get you ready and to work with you and get you to Apple maybe in three years. How's that sound? So let's work together. Well, all of a sudden you got my buy-in because you actually care about me and what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody for trying to better themselves, I'm all for it, you know, and then any way I can help them out. You know, if I was in a leadership position, I want to do that. But, you know, you talked about interviews earlier and, and what do you, what do you think about the interview process? And, and the reason I'm asking that is because I've been thinking about that a lot lately, just because of these podcasts and, and the interviews I did, you know, as far as graduate school and getting a job and, and everything. I mean, do you think you really can know a person from the interview process or is it just kind of, you know, bullshit just because, you know, for example, you know, the couple of weeks before the inter- interview, a week before the interview, I would sit there just be studying books on what I should say and what, what supposedly sounds good. And it's like, then you think about it, it's like, was that really me though? Is that just me just rehearsing and remembering questions and, or, and, or answers that they want to hear? Think about the educational system. That's first of all, Chris, that's such a phenomenal point that you made. And if you think about the educational system, you're just doing what we've been taught to do. Exactly. It's not about understanding how to think in school. It's about understanding how to pass the test. Mm, you hit it. That's, you know, I, I studied philosophy in college. I studied psychology and I dated a girl at one point in time whose father was like, that's a joke, right? Like, why are you studying philosophy? Who needs that? Like study something that'll give you a, a tool, you know, like accounting or, and I just, I, I thought, and he was a really nice guy, a really successful guy. And I just thought, man, you, you don't get it. Actually, that's a lie. I thought maybe I don't get it. I thought that way for a long time, trying to fit into other people's idea of what I should be or my idea of what other people thought I should be. The story, the story that I told myself about what society thought I should be. Sure. It, it made me question a lot of the, the work that I did in college and beyond that, that really interested me, but I didn't see where it all connected. Um, and somebody really special helped me make that connection. And I want, I want to get back to that, but I want to answer that question of yours about the whole interview process. I don't want to answer it with a joke. I forget who told me this joke, but I actually told this in a final interview because they asked, they said, hey, man, like, how do we know that you're going to be able to come in here and make an impact? How do we know it's not just all smoke and mirrors? And so this is this is the joke I told him. I said, so a man dies and he shows up at the pearly gates, St. Peter's there. And he says, uh, let's call the man Bob. And he says, all right, Bob, St. Peter here. Uh, we decided to try something new and you're going to be one of, m- m- one of the first to, to, you're going to be among the first to try this out. I mean, a lot of other people today, so you won't be the first, but, um, so we're going to do something new. We're going to let you spend, uh, a day in hell. We're gonna let you spend a day in heaven. And then you decide, you know, where you want to go. Cause we want, we want you to be happy. Bob's a little confused, but he says, okay. So, so I start in hell. They say, yeah, go ahead. There's the elevator right over there. So Bob walks over. Pushes the button, elevator opens up, gorgeous elevator. Steps in, almost in a blink, the doors open, and it's this rager of a party. I mean, EDM music playing in the background, like 
sexy people of all walks of life just walking around drinking, smoking, doing whatever you can imagine. It's happening there. I mean, laser show, like it's the best party this guy's ever seen. All of a sudden, Satan pops around. He's you know wearing this like Hugh Hefner style smoking jacket. He goes, Bob, Bob, it's so good to see you. Hey, listen, we got a special room set up over here for you with all your, you like Jack Daniels, right? It's, it's over there. It's waiting for you. Go ahead, man. Have a great time. Come see me when you're done. So Bob spends 24 hours there and uh, Satan escorts him to the elevator. In a blink, he's back up. Doors open. There's St. Peter. St. Peter says, what'd you think? He said, well, I, I had a better time than I thought I would. Let's just say that. St. Peter goes, all right, well, hey, you know, here's your day in, in heaven. And so the pearly gates open and the choir of angels sing. And he steps onto a cloud and floats off into this beautiful, blissful peace. For almost the whole day, he sees barely anyone floating around, perfect temperature, perfect weather. He gets done at the end of his 24 hours and St. Peter's there to greet him at the gates. And he says, well, you spent 24 hours in hell, 24 hours in heaven. What do you think? And Bob says, you know, St. Peter, I never thought the day would come when I'd say this, but um, I think I want to go to hell. St. Peter looks a little dejected and he says, well, you know, if that's your final answer, that's your choice. Bob says, yeah, that's my final answer. He says, all right, well, hey, it was great to meet you, Bob. Enjoy eternity in hell. Bob turns around, walks over to the elevator, presses the button. Nothing happens. Presses the button. Nothing happens. St. Peter goes, oh, the elevator's broken. You're going to have to take the stairs. So he, Bob takes the stairs and he's walking for what seems like an eternity. I mean, walking. He's dripping in sweat at this point. He's exhausted. All he can think of is, oh, man, this. Oh, the minute I get down there to that rave party, I'm just going to need some water. And then I'm, I'm going to get right into it. Oh. And as he gets down, you know, he sees a big door to hell. And he, he, he opens the door and it's hot. I mean, it's really hot. Like you can't believe how hot it is. And they're screaming and there's no EDM music and there are no sexy people. I mean, it smells like farts. It smells like <laughs> sulfur. It's disgusting. And Satan comes over and he, the, the smoking jacket is gone. He's wearing like chain mail and he's carrying one of those. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
big, you know, balls with the spikes on it and a wooden yeah. handle. Yeah. And Bob says, Satan. And Satan says, Bob, welcome to hell. And Bob says, Satan, I don't understand. What's going on? Like yesterday, the party, the babes, the music. He says, oh, Bob, listen. See, yesterday you were a prospect. Today you're a customer. Oh, shit. And I think that summarizes <laughs> the experience of interviews because we're on our best behavior, aren't we? I mean, we're following up. We're not missing a beat. We're waking up an hour early. We're driving there an hour early. We're studying the right answers. And then we get the job and it's like, whew, got him. And there's, there's something to be said for this idea of a trial period, um, for this idea of maybe even a, an internship in, in some ways. But the way that we interview now, I think we'd all agree is maybe not broken, but not as effective as it could be. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And with your joke, as you were talking, I thought you were going to go a different direction. I thought that, you know, Bob was going to be partying in hell forever. It's just like that. It was going to be like, well, do you really want to party forever and ever with EDM music and sexy people as long as you, you know, forever and ever, all eternity? Because, you know, I, you know, trying to talk on a little philosophy here, because I think of, you know, my life like that, that, you know, when I go watch a, a really good movie that's three hours long or whatever, it's like, do I really want to sit here and, watch this great movie for six hours. No, I kind of want to get off eventually and go, you know, do something else. And then, you know, explore other, whatever life has to offer me. And, you know, it's kind of way I've, I don't know if I started to look at my life like that, you know, it's just that, you know, I want to do stuff, but do I want to do it forever? Yeah. No, it's got, I want it to end eventually. I think, you know, it's like almost live what, uh, would you want to live forever? And what is it? Immortality? Like, I, well, I don't know. I mean, Part of me says yes. Part of me says no. But, you know, I think all, you know, you got to get off the ride eventually. Right. What do you mean? What are your thoughts? I know that's well, kind of a different direction, but what were you? No, it's, I mean, it's it, it's interesting. The concept of an interview or an interview process, unless you're in a sales role, there's nothing really quite like it because it's an opportunity for you to shine and I know some people don't like interviews. They, they, they feel that they're in the spotlight, they're on stage. So I, I get that for some people, the interview is, is a really uncomfortable process. But the dopamine hit of getting that job, mm -hmm. whether you liked the interview process or not, it's a hit. I mean, it does something to our brain. And again, unless you're in a sales role, most jobs are really anticlimactic. It, it's sort of like, well, I guess this is my life now. I show up on Monday, there's a stack of manila folders on my desk, I got to get through them. I show up on Tuesday, and now I get, you know, obviously, it's all, all done on computer. So there's a metaphorical stack of manila folders. But that's it. That's your life. Maybe in a couple months, a couple years, you'll get a promotion. And you'll be the one placing the manila folders on other people's desks. But that just means that you show up every Monday with a room full of manila folders that you don't have to delegate. And that's your life. Yeah. And that really dovetails in with your conversation about living forever, because what makes life really, let's use music as a metaphor here. Okay. What makes a piece of music beautiful is the contrast, the soft and the loud, the fast and the slow, the pauses, the rest, you know, I mean, EDM, we brought it up like waiting for the beat to drop. 
that's that tension of when is it going to happen? And then the release. Great careers, great organizations find ways to, many of them don't have to create tension, but they do find ways to intentionally use tension and release to keep people engaged. If you listen to a piece of music, better yet, if I talked and the entire time I talked, I just talked like this and I didn't really change the dialogue of my voice or the tone of my voice or anything like that. I mean, your listeners are probably already thinking, okay, that's enough. I'm out of this podcast. Goodbye. But if we're using dynamic changes and if we're varying the tone of our voice just a little bit, all of a sudden now it becomes so much more interesting. And so that interview process has a lot of tension and release in it. There's new people. There's new questions. Is there going to be a third interview? We don't know. Well, I have to do a book report, a diorama, a project. Like, who knows? We could get wild. But then work is largely either all release. I mean, it's just so friggin' mind-numbingly boring. Um, or it's all tension. You know, it's just this go, go, go. Like, I say that hustle culture is hurry culture, and hurry culture is worry culture. And Ooh. worry culture is toxic. So companies are like, we work hard, play hard. Mm, do you, though? When do you rest hard? Because that's the release that people need. So would I want to live forever? I think I'd want to live as long as I'd like. Mm. But I don't know if I'd want to be forced into this sort of vampire-esque, you know, no end in sight sort of of life. I like that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I like that. That's a good point. But, you know, touching on interviews again, I think one thing that kind of changed my way of thinking about interviews and long story short, it was that, you know, I was going for my graduate degree and, you know, I went through the first part of it. You know, you take the GRE at the time and all your paperwork, write a paper and you you make the first step. Right. So then they call you to campus and, you know, you got to do an actual formal interview. So I get there and, you know, I was like, man, if they're calling me to campus, I'm good. You know, no big deal. Right. So I go sit down with the Dean and I think he's got a couple of the students who are already in the program and um, maybe a couple of professors. I don't remember, but anyway, Towards the end of the end of the uh, towards the end of the interview, he called me by the wrong name, and he already called me by the next person in line. <laughs> and immediately, I thought I was acing it. I thought I was riding high. I thought I had you know like the dopamine hit, like you were just talking about. And then once he, I forget what name he called me now. It's like Jerry or something or whatever it was. The guy was next, and it was just like everything just you know just came out of me. The whole energy, and you know, luckily I you know, and I was I think this was 2010, 2011. I can't remember what year, but. You know, basically for 2009 when I got my undergrad. And luckily another professor was like, oh, his name is Chris. And the guy, you know, he started fumbling his papers and, you know, he didn't know what to do because he got called out on it. And I guess he kind of looked like a fool for calling me the wrong name. But, you know, he, he walked me out and was like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. And, you know, apologizing and, and all this. And I was already beat down. You know, I was like, no matter what you tell me right now, I know that I'm probably not getting in, like 99%. And then, you know, he's like, well, good luck to you, you know? And I was like, hey, man, just thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. I'll just go on. And and so the whole ride home, like two and a half hours later, I was just, just dwelling on that and thinking about how much I hate this interview process. And it was like, well, did I try too hard? I mean, what what made him already overlook me? And, you know, was it something I said? You know, I was just overthinking the whole situation. And or maybe it was just not meant to be. You know, maybe the universe is sudden now we don't want you to go to this school. I don't know. You know but anyway, I think that's just what made me think that, you know, if he would have just gave me a chance to actually see what I was capable of rather than just what I was saying during an interview, I would think I could have made a bigger impression. I mean, I'd love to hear you say a little more about that because that's an interesting thing you bring up is that sort of post interview 
uh, self-abuse session that many of us are prone to, you know, was it my tie? Tell me it was my tie. Like, give me something. <laughs> yeah. Just, I don't, I, I don't know. It was just, just, you mean as far as me just driving home and what I was thinking about that part, the post interview or. Well, I mean, yeah, but how open-minded would you be to the idea that maybe it had nothing to do with you? Well, I mean, I don't know. That's a great question because at the time, you know, you're obviously you're in the hot seat and all eyes are on you and everyone's just paying attention directly to what you're saying. And, you know, and half the time, and, you know, even during podcasts, you know, when I say like, Ooh, I shouldn't have said that. Ooh, maybe I talked too long there. You know, it's like, Ooh, well, because I feel like at that point, it, most of the, most of it is on. Well, at the time, I guess I thought it was all on me and, you know, how did I prepare and was I actually ready enough for this interview? And yeah, I think that's what I've really dwelled on myself about. Cause I guess that's the time, like you were talking about, you know, that was what we were told, you know, going through interview processes or, or mock interviews, you know, during college and, and uh, studying for him. And then, you know, that was a social norm, I guess at the time, like, Oh, this is how it's gotta be. This is what you gotta say. And then it's like, Oh man, well, you know, I, I said every word out of that book, you know, I memorized it, but then, you know, on the way home, it's part of me thinking, it's like, well, you know, I just memorized that because that's what the book told me to, you know, and that sounded, that probably sounded really rehearsed when I answered that question. So I guess those are the things I kept thinking about on the way home and that why I thought it was just all about me. There's so much here. I love it. One, we're approaching an organization in an interview with an opportunity to add value. And they're approaching the interview, trying not to make a bad choice. It's that scarcity mindset. Maybe it's not trying to make the best choice. Maybe it's trying not to make a bad choice. So there's two types of interviews then, if that's the case. Then there's people who are asking questions to try and weed you out mm -hmm. versus people who are asking questions trying to understand the value you bring. And that's that that's that that's that approach avoidance. That's that avoid pain, even at the expense of missing out on pleasure. So understanding how we're crafting the experience of an interview, what that questioning looks like. I mean, there are and I don't know about that at the academic level, but I know that there are experts who work with organizations on the on just the interview process. Sure. But many of those experts start with the foundation of here's what to not say so that you don't get sued. Mm. And, and I'm not I'm not discounting the importance of that, but I'm simply saying so we're starting out at avoid pain. Right. Not necessarily a bad thing. Nobody wants to get sued. There, there are a lot of rules and regulations around hiring and things that you can't say. OK. But are we trying to find the best person for the job or are we trying to weed out the worst people. Well, like, what's the real goal of this interview? Is it, is it to get to know you? Or is it to try and identify the red flag so we can go, nope, not Chris? Yeah. And then the other part of that, of what you said, Chris, was, you know, maybe if I just prepped a little bit better, or maybe if I did this. Mm -hmm. And as a performer, I tell you, man, that going through auditions, Oh my God, it, it's, it's, you know, 
Was it the jeans I wore? Was it the way I did my hair today? Should I have worn glasses, not contacts? Should I, you know, should I not have shaved a beard? Should I have done... I'll never forget the first time I auditioned for one of those singing shows. I auditioned for American, second season of American Idol. Okay. And, uh, who was it? Justin Guarini? No, he came in second. Who won the second? I don't forget who won the second season. But it's like, they know, the casting directors know who they want to put on that stage. They, it's a very deliberate choice that they're making. Just like if you go out for, I've auditioned for Broadway shows. Like they've got, a picture in their mind. Like if you, I don't know if you read the Harry Potter books when they first came out. Mm, I watched the movies. I, all right. So I had a, I had a vision of what Hermione, which by the way, I thought was like Hermione. And I was like, I don't understand. What is this weird Hermione? All right. And then, Oh, Hermione, Greg, you're the dummy. You just don't know how to pronounce that name. So I had a vision of what she looked like in my mind. And the character that played Hermione did not look like the vision in my mind. If I were a casting director, that girl, woman, now uh, Emma Watson would, right? Emma Watson would not have been cast in that role. So do they have an ideal candidate in mind? Maybe it's what it looks like on the CV, not necessarily what they look like in person. You know, they're not judging you based on your physical attributes, but rather your you know, accomplishments. But maybe you're just not their cup of tea. It's really damaging to our ego and to our self-confidence to get in the car and go, what if I did this all? It's, it's. I went out there and I was honest. And that goes back to the honesty in the, in the interview process that so many people are in that interview trying to get a job. Maybe not the job that they love. Maybe it is, but more often than not, it's just, man, I need a job. Yeah. I've, I've interviewed, I've interviewed over a thousand senior executives in, in the work that I've done. 75% of them, when I said, you know, what is it about this company? Like, why do you work here? 75% said the equivalent of, I needed a job. They had a job opening. I interviewed and they hired me. Makes sense. It does it though. Well, I mean, no passion. No, no. Like, Hey man, this is exactly where I wanted if 25. The other 25% had a story. I've, I, I've always wanted to work for this company or my dad started this company and I always knew I wanted to be a part of it. Like they were connected. Right. But the other 75, it was just like, you know, it's like you show up to a restaurant and you just say to the waiter, hey, you know, bring me whatever. I, I really don't care. I mean, this is your life. This is where you spend more time of your, of your waking life than you do with your family, mm-hmm. with anybody else. And it just, it, it boggles my mind that there are folks out there who are going through an interview process just because they need a job. And then they beat themselves up because they didn't get a job they didn't even really care about. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's you, Chris, by the way. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I'm, but I mean, when I said that makes sense, I mean, that seems to be a lot of the, the narrative is that, you know, you need a job, go get a job. And then, you know, no matter what, you know, some, some people haven't found their passion. Some have. So that 25% who was already like, oh, I know exactly what I want to do. But some of them are just like, you know, whether they get into a. All right. So, for example, you know, when I was working at that factory, you know, they did layoffs every now and again. And it was like a high paying job. So when people or when people got those jobs, they immediately went into, you know, buying boats and toys and motorcycles, and fancy cars. and stuff. But when they got laid off, they started selling everything. And then it was immediately or if they didn't sell everything, I just got to get a job again. It doesn't matter what it is because I got I got to pay off my stuff. You know, I got kids. I got a wife. I got a, a mortgage now. And I think that's where it comes from that, you know, don't who cares what you know your passions are what your dreams are you know just make a living 
now. And that's, I don't, that almost seems like what America's made the narrative be. Maybe not America. But I don't know what other countries are like, but you know, even grow, coming out of high school or not even high school, college, you know, when I was trying to get my job, you know, I was, I majored in PE and I was trying to get, you know, find a teaching job at the time. And I was you know applying everywhere. I didn't even care. I was not even looking up schools or doing anything. So I need a PE job. You know, that's what I got. And I never got it. So then, then I was like, okay, now I need a job. And that's when I got, you know, started working on that factory floor or whatever. And then eventually I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm more than this. You know, I went to school for a reason. You know, I want to, be able to produce my talents and, you know, take what I knowledge I do have and, you know, contribute to somewhere where I would feel that I'm just not doing the same thing over and over again, where I feel worthy. That's yes, that's the answer. So what I would ask you, if I were your coach at that point in time, I would say, okay, when you have, I need a PE job. So I would say, finish the sentence. I need a PE job so that I can, at the time, yeah. at the time, it was just so I can make a living. And then at the time, I wanted to contribute to because I had a couple of PE teachers and weightlifting coaches in high school that really I thought made an impact. Well, on, wait, like, let me stop you there because you just gave me two answers. OK, right? one was make a living and the other you started to go down with so I contribute to something else. So let's just start with the so I can make a living. OK. I would push back and say, do you need a PE job or do you just need a job so you can make a living? Well, you just need a job in that. Okay. So now, now we've broadened the scope of what you're, what it's capable of you doing. So I need a job so that I can make a living. I need to make a living so that I can. Buy stuff or live or, you know. (laughs) See, now it gets a little more complicated. This is what I call root goal analysis. Okay. And it's the really hard work that most of us, myself included, um, at least I didn't, don't do. Because we just, it's real easy. Society tells us the answer. Just get a job, buy stuff, have kids, boom. Yeah. You'll be dead soon. Just enjoy the ride, baby. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you can't, but I'm saying that I think what really trips us all up is that we don't need a job. We need a calling. We need a cause. We need something that we want to do. And this is where my two philosophies conflict because the Stoic philosophy says you're going to die. Sure. Just enjoy the ride. Sure. Right. But I believe that if we pursue something we're passionate about, if we try to make an impact, that the income will follow. If we just focus on impact instead of income, we'll not only get the income, but we'll be happier in the process. It may take a little longer. It may not look exactly how our guidance counselor told us it should look or how our parents told us it's going to look. But it will be more rewarding, more fulfilling, and long-term more sustainable than the way we do it now. Why don't we do it that way? Because we're not developed as people in school. We're developed as students to get the A on the test Mm -hmm. so that we can get a job, so we can be developed as employees to get the profitability where it needs to be. Why? Who gives a shit? I just, I, I'm, I'm blown away by the amount of people that are pursuing something they genuinely don't give a shit about. Mm-hmm. How do you, how did you come up with all this? I mean, you know, you, t- you earlier we were talking about you being a piano and painful self-experience. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I love, I mean, I love your mindset and I love your philosophies and what, you know, you seem like you put a lot of thought into this and, but that was my question for you. How does, you know, you trying to go out with American Idol or whatever one it was you said and, and then all of a sudden now you're 
talking about the workplace culture here. Like, you know, like it's uh, like you've been doing it your whole life. I, I, I have just nobody's paid me for it. Um, <laughs> this is, you know, this is I, I am what you're hearing is the product of someone who went on sales calls for, you know, 12 years, spent inordinate amount of time in the car, on airplanes, thinking, um, not reading until recently, really, um, but thinking about how much I hated the thing I was doing and not really understanding why I kept doing it. And it wasn't until this pause in my life that the vocal surgeries created, that this issue with my voice created, that I looked in the mirror and I said, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to change. And I really didn't want to kill myself. I'm really thankful I had a good support system because I mean, I don't, I don't not saying that hyperbole or to get attention. Like I was at a point where I was standing on the subway uh, platform waiting for the train to go to work. It was in between like the fourth or fifth surgery and this, you know, it, it was clear that this was going to be a longer road than I'd initially envisioned. And I just thought, do I even want to be here anymore? Would it just be easier if I stepped in front of this oncoming subway car? And it was in that moment that I said, dude, like this is not okay. And something's got to change. And, and that's when I met, that's when I met the person who helped me change everything. I said, I wanted to talk about this earlier. I'm glad we got back to it. So I went to a personal development conference Mm -hmm. because I thought, what else do I got to lose? Like, let's go try this. Sure. And it was great. You know, a lot of good information that I got there, but it was who I met while I was there. I was in line in the concession stand. Um, and I was, I just started the keto diet. So literally the only thing I could eat there was soup. Oh, it was yeah. so annoying. It was like everything carb fueled, but then soup was all I could eat. Um, you know, very oil based. So, uh, I think it was like a broccoli and cheddar, whatever it was. Anyway, <laughs> that's not, that's not anyway. So okay. my point, so I'm in line for the concession stand and I start chatting up this woman who's in front of me. Um, her name is Svetlana. She lived in northern, uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, and she had emigrated from Russia, actually sort of immigrated. I'm not sure what the right term is. She fled Russia under the cover of night. She had worked for a politician who was assassinated and then wound up here in Pennsylvania and um, started telling me her story. And I'm just like, I mean, mouth, jaw on the floor. This what this woman's gone through and achieved is just is, is bonkers. Absolutely a banana story. And um, I get I got so caught up in her story that I was surprised when she said, so what about you? Like, what's your story? And I had one of those like, uh, 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 well, and then I sort of composed myself and I thought, I don't I don't know who this woman is. And there's a good chance I will never see her again. So I'm not going to try to make myself look good or look like I have my shit together. I'm just going to tell her the truth. And I un- I unloaded um, I unburdened is probably the better term. I unburdened myself onto this stranger and I, I shared how upset I was and that I was, I felt like I was actually at rock bottom and that I didn't know what to do. And I had all, I, I, I knew that I was capable. I just didn't care because I couldn't sing anymore. And I, I had had these visions once. I won't go into the whole thing that I shared with her, but I shared it all with her. And as I'm sort of wrapping it up, she, she's smiling and her eyes are sparkling and she looks at me and she goes, Greg, I, I know you don't see it, but you've got all these different parts of your life and your interests that you see as sort of disparate and separate in their own little silos. And I, I don't think you've ever tried to combine them. I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, entertainment, 
psychology, philosophy, sales, persuasion, you're passionate about helping others. Like, look at those guys up on stage running this event. Like, don't you think that's you? Mm. And it was this moment where the like a metaphorical lightning bolt struck my head and it was illuminating. It was freeing. I had, I had never thought of that. It was a perspective shift that I probably never would have gotten on my own. I needed someone outside of me to give it to me. So you asked, you know, where did all this come from? It's been in here. I never felt like I had the right, the right way or understood how to get it out there. And it's because of this lived experience of, of going through tremendous change. I, the, all of the jobs and the experience with the interview process. I mean, I had 40 different jobs before I turned 30. Wow. 40 jobs. Now, some of them were summer jobs at restaurants. Some of them were, you know, jobs that I worked at for a couple of weeks. And I was like, I hate this. No, I'm not coming back. No call, no show. What, some of them I worked at for several years. But I got to go through the interview process at all of them. I had managers at all of them. I got to go through the training process at all. Of them. I saw a lot of shit. I saw the way a lot of companies did things. Sure. And that gave me a lot of empirical evidence that I've now layered on top actual uh, degrees and certifications and studies that help me sort of present and parse that evidence and then put theories behind it. Um, but man, I'm passionate about this because I don't want people to have to go through what I went through and I'm, I'm lucky. I mean, I fell into a sales job. Sales jobs pay really well. Mm -hmm. There are people that have fallen into jobs that don't pay well and they feel the exact same way I did back in 2014 and 2013. I want to, I want to be able to give them a different way to think, give them a different approach. I want to empower them. And I, I believe the way to do that is through helping companies shape their culture, shape the employee experience, create people within that organization that perform at their best, that perform in a way that lift others up around them. And ultimately when those people become better, they're better for the business they work with. When you develop yourself as a person, let's, let's take the example of an educator. You've got one educator with really crappy emotional intelligence and one educator with really great emotional intelligence. Who's going to connect better with their students? Greater. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that you both know history. It doesn't matter that you both understand the pedagogy of how to teach or how to grade. That EQ makes all the difference. What we develop within our people, these transferable, I call them tactical skills, you know, soft skills is what they're more commonly known as, but these transferable skills are skills that people want desperately because they know it makes them more intrinsically valuable. But they're also skills that make these businesses better. Imagine if your entire sales force had a better EQ, if your customer service had better EQ. If they could empathize with the person on the other end of the line, not just try to solve the problem and get them off. Yep. So I don't want to go too deep into the material. We're having a great conversation here, but I mean, I am really passionate about this stuff as you can, can tell. tell yeah dude i can tell and just you know so why when i asked that question it was coming to me like how does a dueling piano bar player you know come to knowing and you know be so passionate as far as workplace culture and theorize it and you sat down and think about everything and just you're you know, the way you speak is so passionate about it and it's so awesome it's just like fuck you know, why is it like, it's like what you were saying. Why is not everybody listening to this guy? Like, like changing the, if you're unmotivated, if you want to make a change, I mean, you know, this, what you're saying is just, you know, you're just, you know, just telling it like it is, man. And it's just like, Hey man, you know, you, and you're a prime example of it too. And that's great that, 
you know, you you're living proof that you basically hit rock bottom is what it sounds like. And that you're right. Nah, man, I'm going to make a change. And it's worked out for you. And then, and it seems like, you know, there's so many people and I've met so many of these people that just, like we said, they get stuck in this comfort zone or just, an, or even a negative comfort zone. And just, they work out their lives for 30 or work for their lives or work for 30 years and then decide to hang it up. Like, well, I'll just go see what life has to offer me now. I never really do anything, but it's like, I guess I'll travel or what. And they, you know, one of the a doctor I follow, it was talking about how you need to challenge yourself every day. And that's one of the keys to longevity. And like when people, you know, quit or never, you know, quit working or don't have anything to challenge themselves and just little things. It doesn't have to be go climb Mount Everest or anything. They end up, you know, just falling apart and they, they just get in this deep, you know, negative spiral behavioral loop, I guess. And, and that was one of his keys. It's like, you got to challenge yourself, whether it's work, you know, finding your passion and, you know, using those little daily life challenges to become or make magic, I guess, you know, and become happy, you know, have a reason for living, have a purpose. It's, yeah. It's that tension and release, you know, whether it's building a bird feeder, um, yeah. you know, figuring out a way to here, here's the thing I'm, I'm like hype on now. I guess this is like prime dad mode for me is that like, I want to understand how to mow my lawn like the like they do in the baseball field. Oh, you know, a little bit dark here. A little bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not even big enough to do. So I'm sort of being facetious. But one day I'm going to be that dad that stripes his lawn. But it's it's something that creates tension and, and, and release. And, and this is an important point that I want to make sure I get in here. You don't have to love your nine to five. I'm not saying that if you don't love, if you're not passionate about what you do, like rah, rah, sis, boom, ba, my nine to five that you're, you know, you're missing out. I'm not saying that, Yeah. but I'm saying you have to pursue something of passion. So if it's not your nine to five, whatever you're doing with your five to nine, your five, 5am to 9am, and then your 5pm to 9pm, that better be something you're passionate about. It really better. Well, most people say, and I don't know, we're getting kind of close on time here, but you know, a lot of people say that, you know, they, they don't have a passion. They haven't found it yet, but you know, at one point in their life, even when they were a kid, they had some type of a dream or something they wanted to do. I mean, I don't think nobody grows up and says, I want to work from eight to five every day until I decided I'm done. You know I mean? What little kid says that? And you know, it's somewhere through the course of adolescence and teenagers and adulthood that, something changes. And I don't know if like it's society, kind of what we were talking about where you were saying like education kind of basically teaches you what to think and not how to think. And all of a sudden those dreams are just gone. You're just like, Oh, well, I'll just keep doing this bullshit job that we were talking about earlier until I can go drink margaritas on the beach. We, so. we either teach ourselves or we're taught by others. And it's very often the people that we surround ourselves with that create our limits. They tell us they reinforce what's possible. What's not possible. Yeah. And I, I do think that childhood is really about discovery. I mean, our, I, my, my daughter's just about to be 20 months. Every, she's discovering everything. Every day is an adventure for her. Sure. And so to your point, those people who say, I don't have a passion. Great. Find one. Do something to your point that's challenging, that's different. Read a book on birds. Read a book on snakes. Yeah. Read a book on dice. I, like, just figure it out. You're not going to get a different output if you don't change your inputs. I mean, that's a basic, it, it's almost like a fundamental law of music. You know, if you've got a guitar and you don't put a pedal in between you and the speaker, that guitar is always going to sound like that guitar. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. You need something that changes the input output. And most people, because you said you talked about this earlier, like you know, we really are a consumer culture. It is come home at the end of the day, pop on Netflix or pop on whatever. And I'm, there's nothing. I'm not anti Netflix. I'm a big Stranger Things okay. fan. I'm a big Ted Lasso fan. Like I Same. like my shows and Same. movies. There's nothing wrong with that. But I read a lot more than I did before. That's not like, you know, go me. I'm just saying like, I'm constantly looking for different stuff. In fact, I found, uh, I found a book today that I'm super pumped about. That's about the first mammals. Like there was a a rhinoceros that was three times the size of the biggest elephant ever. That was like one of the first mammals. I don't know anything about science. I've never been interested really like big time in natural history, you know, except every kid loves dinosaurs, but like, dude, I'm adding this book to my, I'm going to find something in there that not only sparks my curiosity and passion and interest, but that I can share with others. So, you know, if you don't have a passion, find one. That's the whole point of this. Mm -hmm. The whole point of life is to explore, to find something that really interests you, that, that lights your soul on fire. What you do with it is up to you. But if you've resigned yourself to just clock in at eight, clock out at five, crack a Budweiser and pop on Netflix, like, mm, are you even living? Forget living forever, or even living now. Mm. Damn, Greg. I think we should take it home on that right there. Man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. I like that right there. Um, if people want to find you, you know, plug away all your stuff right now if you want to. All right, cool. Well, I'm on all the socials, um, Instagram and Twitter. I don't really mess around on Facebook anymore. Instagram, Twitter. I'm uh, at Gregory Offner Jr. Uh, LinkedIn. Um, just type my name in and you'll you'll see me. Uh, my website is GregoryOffner.com. So I'd love for you to visit that and just check out the work that I do. The, you know, as a keynote speaker, an event MC, corporate trainer. Um, and I'd love to hear from folks who listen to this episode and if something resonated with them or or if they heard something and thought, this guy is an idiot, you know, know what he's talking about. Like share that too. Cause I don't have all the answers. I try to ask a lot of questions though. That's good. Um, and it's been just so cool to get to spend some time with you, Chris, and have a nice back and forth, have a nice actual conversation. Yep. Um, I really enjoy it. Cool. Well, thanks so for I got to ask, I, I, I got to ask real quick. Um, I don't know if you're going to publish this video, but there's a TIE fighter behind you on the desk. I am going to publish this video. All right. So yeah. talk about the TIE fighter. What's so the deal with that? That's a, uh... I got a couple of them over oh, here. I see. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, and you know, when, uh, I guess, you know, my adult satisfaction, whatever you want to say, but I build Legos. Um, those are all Legos. Yeah. Dude. So those are some of them right there. Um, that's so, really cool. Yeah. So that's a 1989, not to get too nerdy right here, but this is the 1989 Batwing. Um, that's a Lamborghini. That's the TIE fighter. You just called out. So yeah, I, I buy like those big special ones that Lego make and I put them together in my spare time and, like right there's a the new Batmobile. I haven't done it yet. And right there's Frank Sinatra's mugshot. <laughs> so, you know, that mugshot reminded me of the Johnny Cash mugshot. It's almost similar. I want to get that one too. And so, you know, just to give everybody something they can watch if they want. In the movie Walk the Line, Johnny the, the Johnny Cash documentary. Walking Phoenix? Yeah, with Walking Phoenix. Yeah. There's a bit in there when he's first trying to get signed to a record label. And he's playing these gospel songs and he's just kind of going through the motions and he's singing it. And, and the dude who's working for the record company is like, yo, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to press this. Nobody wants to buy. There's a million records out there that sound like this. 
He goes, unless you tell me this is in your heart of hearts, what you desperately want to play your whole life. He goes, this ain't, this ain't you. And then Johnny gets all offended. He said, what are you saying? I don't love Jesus. He said, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, this isn't what's in your heart to play. And so he's kind of dejected for a minute. And then Johnny Cash says, hey, can I maybe do one more? And that's when he starts playing uh, Ring of Fire. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's such a great summation of our whole conversation is that for a long time, I was playing these gospel hits that I thought everybody wanted to play because that's what everybody else was selling. And it wasn't until I met a mentor, a coach, this individual, Svetlana, who kind of asked me to play my own version of Ring of Fire. And that's when everything changed. So all I'd ask your listeners, you know, if they want to reach out, great, but like find, find your Ring of Fire. Mm. How do we take it home on that one right there? <laughs> Love it, I have to go run through a brick wall or something right now. <laughs> but Greg, thanks for doing this, man. This is great. So. Chris, it's been awesome chatting with you. Okay. All right, everybody, we're out of here. Be good to yourselves. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.